Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Fugue for Thought, the podcast. I'm Alan, and I'm excited about the episode that we have today. Um, and, and I'll explain why here shortly. I've had a few interesting uh, recent conversations with various people about uh, talking about how to get into classical music or kind of what sections or segments of, you know, the centuries of classical music history um, got them interested in music or kind of opened their eyes maybe to different things. Um, and I think the approach for so many people is that you should start at the beginning and whatever the beginning is for you, perhaps that's Bach or Haydn or somewhere and then move forward chronologically. And that's not always the case. In fact, in the next episode of the podcast that I'm still working on finishing up um, is a very good example of someone who really did the exact opposite. And I think a lot of you guys will be able to identify uh, with someone who started with much more modern work and essentially worked backwards. But for us in today's time, I think it might be a little bit difficult to relate to music like Bach or Haydn, especially if you're not uh, of a musical background and if you don't play the piano or an instrument and, and know what's going on in the music. But I've also always thought that knowing about the person or the circumstances or the history does a lot to help you appreciate what it is. And so today we continue our conversation, my conversation, with Mike McCaffrey. Uh, his blog, his website called Hide and Seek, www.fjhyden.com. Uh, after having looked through some of his stuff and how much research he's done with Haydn's work, I feel um, like maybe I don't need to be writing anymore. I'll just forward everything to him. But um, we haven't talked about Haydn on the blog in a while. Uh, but today we continue part two of our conversation. If you didn't get the first bit from a few months ago, uh, go back and listen there. But if not, uh, you can pick up here. We continue to talk about this composer who's the father of the symphony, of the string quartet. And Mike McCaffrey talks about Haydn like he knows the guy. So let's get started. I should mention here, in case you haven't listened, that this conversation begins with me asking Mike about something that he said to me in an email that I was interested in him clarifying. So here we go. He said something about how uh, I managed to avoid anything post-Beethoven. And that, that kind of sounds like the way that someone would say, like, I managed not to catch the flu this season. Um, <laughs> what's, what's, what is your kind of your, your opinion on, on sort of certainly preference for, sounds like to me, um, Haydn and Mozart and kind of classical era music? Well, yes, certainly classical era. I, I would say that my, my musical roots are firmly in the 18th century. I, I, uh, I used to be a generalist. Uh, I mean, obviously I, I, I've listened to everything up to, uh, you know, the most modern music and, uh, I've gone back as far as the Renaissance, although I wasn't really, and I did that for about 20 years. And, uh, then at a, some point in time, and I, I can't really say what compelled me to do this, but I, I evaluated, you know, what I wanted out of music, and I, I realized that being a generalist wasn't exactly it, because uh, one of the things I've learned is that uh, you can't know everything. Right. And, and, and I like to know everything. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> sure. Uh, you know, conceit I have going for myself. And, uh, well, there's a uh, kind of a... I, 
Well, you know, I, I would specialize in, in a certain era. And so I, I evaluated what I really liked in music. And, and I realized that it was that period from, let's say, 1750 to 1830. Uh, okay, sure. You know, where, where I, you know, I cutting the heart out of the classical era, so to speak. And, sure. and uh, other than Mendelssohn, who I... Of course, Mendelssohn is is actually earlier than a lot of people think. Uh, you know, he started writing as a, as a very young man, and he wrote a lot of good music in the 1820s and early and, 1850s. But I guess so. There's kind of the choice between uh, learning or knowing uh, a little bit about everything or everything about something. Yes, that's 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 what I, I would say. That I would rather be be. For myself, I'm not saying I would rather be known by the world in general because the world in general doesn't really care about me particularly. But but I, for myself, I would rather say I, I knew everything that was available for me to know about Haydn than I would to say, well, I know a little bit about everybody. Right. Uh, you know, it just uh, the satisfaction of 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 knowing in depth about some topic it is just uh, very very um self-satisfying you know and so have you felt um so the the um hide and seek the the name of the 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 website and the the idea behind it as you described do you feel now at this point that you know friends joseph hyden that's a difficult question uh, I, obviously, no, but I feel like uh, I know enough about what his actions have been in various circumstances to have a feeling like if this occurred, this is how I f feel like he would react. And I'd probably be closer to that than a lot of people would. Sure. You know, because I know how he's reacted to similar things over time. Uh, you know, that, that in itself, you know, uh, you know, people say things about other people all the time and, 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 oh, well, Haydn would have done this or that. No, yeah, I doubt it. You know, I really don't <laughs> sure. think he thought that. I, I, you know, I don't think he was jealous of Beethoven. I, I don't think any of that. Uh, well, do you, you know, think that sort of thing. Right. Do you think that some of that comes from, like I asked earlier about this whole him being isolated thing, and, and you said and, and explained very well how, you know, that maybe is a little bit exaggerated. Do you think it's just kind of a romanticized idea that people latch onto? Oh, absolutely. Sounds great. Uh, and, and, you know, people want their heroes to be a certain way. And uh, the 19th century was very good at satisfying those things. But, sure. uh, you know, people think of Haydn as, oh, a great instrumental composer and he was stuck doing this or that, that, that was not, but, but, but he didn't think of himself as being stuck doing opera. Uh, you know, he produced 125 operas in 1786. Jeez. And, and they produced, I mean, he, he went through every note of the score and the libretto and, and he, he customized it for his, uh, his uh, forces that he had. And uh, he wrote some uh, a few ideas that, that that needed to be filled in here or there. I mean, that's what he did, you know. Oh, I don't have anybody who can sing that range. I'm going to have to transpose it down to here. 
Right. And so, and he did that 125 performances in 1786. That's a full-time job for anybody. No kidding. That's every couple of days. He wrote the, the, the second three Paris symphonies. He wrote the beginnings of the Opus 50 quartets. Uh, he, I mean, he did all this other stuff, you know, <laughs> uh, and, and, uh, people, people don't, don't realize, uh, you know, just exactly, let's see, uh, just exactly how much is involved in that. Uh, let me just look here. 1786, good year, 1786. He did the first three Paris symphonies. I take it back. I said, no, it is the second three, excuse me, the three even numbered ones. I did, uh, he did two concertos for Lyra. Uh, he did that nice adagio and F for keyboard. He did the orchestral version of the seven last words. He did a cantata and he did uh, two arias, replacement arias, in addition to producing all those operas. It's a good year for Haydn then. It was a good year. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and then, in addition, he began the, the Opus 50 Quartets, which he completed in the middle of 1787. So, wow. And so what about yeah. one of the things, and maybe, maybe this is another kind of um, over-dramatized or over-emphasized thing, but, but I think not, because I think it's, it's apparent in his music. Um, people associate Haydn, or at least some of his music, with humor. What, is, what, yeah. um, what place does that have in his work? Well, uh, I mean, some of it is overt, uh, and a lot of it is is uh, is only is only obvious if you're a musician, and and as a consequence, sure, difficult for people like me who who aren't really uh, into the analysis of music, and and uh, uh, but if you're familiar with sonata structure. I mean, he'll come back to the recapitulation or, or come back to, you know, uh, going back to the beginning again. And he'll approach that in the wrong key, even though all the notes are are right. I mean, everything the right. orchestra is doing, but then it gets to, to where, and oh, I'm in the wrong key. And he'll go back into the development again and work his way up. You know, it's a, it's a false recapitulation. For sure. If you were uh, very much of a uh, uh, music aficionado and, and understood all that and knew all that, you would find that very funny. So people say that uh, you know when he heard uh, uh, that sort of thing in his music when it was being played, that he would just bust out laughing. <laughs> well, <laughs> and, then, you know, and and so I guess you know maybe maybe audiences of the time were far more. Um, musically literate than we are today with with no like you said no electricity no video games no internet whatever um and and so people would you know they know that we we began in c our second subject was in g and we should end in c in the recapitulation and and it's not in c people would you know pick up on that maybe more than right are we going to approach c you know we're going to go through these keys maybe E flat in there somewhere, you know, uh, and we're going to get to C in a natural progression, but, but all of a sudden we realize, well, we're not in E flat, we're in F, you know, and then it's, <laughs> sure. it's not going to work here. I mean, this is going to look silly. And, uh, but, but he also had overt humor. Uh, uh, I mean, uh, 
for example, the, the Surprise Symphony, which I just wrote an essay about recently. Oh, nice. Uh, was, um, very much uh, intentional, although not necessarily people have attributed, oh, well, he wanted to wake people up. And this. he didn't really want to wake people up. He just wanted to make a surprise that would get people's attention, you know. and Having some fun. Uh, yeah, he was just having some fun. Or in uh, Symphony Number no. 93, I believe it is, uh, where he's, he's going back and forth in the Andante with... Uh, uh, going from old style Handelian music to uh, you know much more modern music, uh, you know current music, uh, stylistically alternating back and forth, right. and then he gets the end of a phrase of Handelian music, and the orchestra stops, and they they come up really, really um, very proper sounding, as sure. I guess with probably. And they stop, and then all of a sudden, the bassoon lets out a great fart that can take <laughs> nothing else. And uh, and then they finish up, and off they go. And uh, I mean, that that's that, there, there's nothing else you could mistake that for. Sure, great bassoon fart. You know, it's it's uh, <laughs> it's one of the one of the prizes of, of Haydn's work. I'm sure that London audience that first heard that was just rolling in the aisles over that. Well, and maybe, you know, maybe part of it, too, is that do, do you think that Haydn had to kind of, he had to entertain himself in some ways, too, you know, to keep from maybe possibility? Yeah, of kind of, you know, throwing something in and kind of seeing what the reaction would be. Um, oh, yes. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. What, what gets a reaction? Uh, and he watched that very carefully because... You know, this is, you know, when we were talking earlier about uh, uh, the age uh, of the 19th century being the age of serious music and all that, but uh, a part of the aspect that, that makes it difficult for people to relate to 18th century music is that, by and large, it was purely entertainment music. And, and you know, Haydn was an entertainer, first and foremost. That's what he cared about. You know, how do people going to react to this music? You know, I want them to be amused. I want them to enjoy it. You know, and if, if they're not going to enjoy it, I'm not going to write it. I'm going to do something sure. else. Right. And and some of that, the false recapitulations and, and wrong key and some of those things um, must remind some people, obviously, a little bit of Beethoven, his, his first symphony that kind of... Mm-hmm begins with these sequences of kind of wrong cadences before the piece has even has even begun do you think that he got some of that from haydn or was that a thing inherent to beethoven oh no absolutely i do believe he got he got that from haydn and i think you know he had that same sort of sense of humor uh and uh you know uh he may have said and i know he said well i didn't learn anything from haydn right but you know, there's a lot going on there. There's there's a lot of interpersonal relationship going on there. You know, Beethoven had an ego, and, yeah, and his ego needed to needed to feel like uh, you know he wasn't second fiddle to Haydn. Right. His his intellect told him that in 1799 he was second fiddle to Haydn. There's no question about it. And uh, sure, Haydn, the king of the world in 1799 or 1800, let's say, uh, after the creation came out. I mean, there was no other composer that even came close to 
fame and, and uh, adulation and, and like that. And Beethoven wanted that. You know, uh, he uh, he certainly uh, knew, you know, uh, speaking with himself, I'm speaking with myself. And I know that this is somebody that can teach me something. You know, I've got ideas and I've got a lot of things going, but this is somebody that can teach me something valuable. And uh, uh, he, 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 He's very Haydnish in, in what he what he did. Uh, I Definitely. mean, he took ideas from Mozart too, you know, but but mainly sure. Haydn. Earlier, you mentioned period instruments. Mm-hmm. This is this is a thing that I have not necessarily actively avoided, but not gotten involved with, partially because I feel like it's a slippery slope. It's a rabbit hole that I could go down. That right now I, I can't be involved with. What's the what's the um, kind of the attraction, what's the difference or the, the importance of, of period instruments or historically informed performance, especially with Haydn? Well, um, I mean, I think that, that any, any group of, of competent musicians can study and learn and understand how uh, their predecessors played things. And, and, and so historically informed performance is a is a wonderful thing, and and I I do certainly uh, applaud it. I I, I um, buy recordings by historically informed groups, no matter what sort of instruments they're playing. But I always keep a, a difference between that and period or period reproduction instruments, and and the reason being that there's some things you can't reproduce with modern instruments, and uh, those things are like tonal balance and tone color. Sure. Uh, you listen to uh, uh, seven different people play something on a forte piano, uh, 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 play the same piece of music, and they'll all seven sound different because the pianos have, each piano has its own character and its own characteristic sound. Right. Whereas me, and this is just me, and maybe I've got a 10 ear, but uh, every Steinway sounds like every other Steinway. and. Uh, <laughs> You know, it's just, uh, and this is part of production methods. You know, it's not a, it's not a knock on it. Uh, There was a huge trend all through the 19th century and 20th century for consistency in tone. So that you could take a piece of music and go anywhere in the world and put an orchestra playing it and it would sound like that piece of music and like nothing else. But in Europe in the 18th century, you could go from this town to the next town and, and and play something and it would sound entirely different you know the musicians would play it at a different tempo and it would have a different sound because they had didn't didn't have the same balance of instruments and you know some of them uh uh, you know had different kinds of instruments and uh uh, overall it was it was a very um uh, it was a different expectation you know i'm looking entertained by this music and um this is the best I can do today with this group of people and they play it. And that's what you get. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's, that's it. Uh, That's, and, and that really appeals to me uh, from a, uh, you know, at a visceral level. And, and I love the sound of period instruments. I I just did an essay on the symphony at concertant in B flat and at Haydn wrote in, in London in 1792 and um, I've got a friend in Zurich 
who had one recording of it and and uh it, it happened to be the fisher which is a very good recording you know you know the one the i'm talking about austro-hungarian right? haydn orchestra exactly yep and uh he, he said well it, it doesn't sound particularly special it, it sounds good uh, and i i suggested to him that he get the uh uh, Concilium Musicum recording uh, uh, with Paul Ongerer, because that's the one that I, I sifted through a variety of them. And he wrote back to me, he said, it sounds like an entirely different piece of music. The oboes have a real sharp rasp to them. And Interesting. You know, the modern just would never, ever want to have in his sound. But, but, sure. but in the 18th century, that was what an oboe sounded like. And, and that's what they play. But But the important thing to me is, that's what Haydn expected from when he wrote that piece of music. He expected what he heard. that have that kind of sound. He he didn't expect that beautiful creamy tone that an oboe has today, because he had sure. never heard such a thing. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and and so it just satisfies me on all levels to to hear music done on period instruments. Interesting. Uh, yeah, and the balance, uh, you know, and just just to throw this in, but the balance of chamber music, which I love chamber music, but um, I mean, as well as the Beaux Arts Trio does the piano trios, for example. Uh-huh. I much prefer like Trio seventeen ninety, where the 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 forty piano uh, doesn't dominate the whole thing. I mean, right. Even if he tried to, he couldn't. He doesn't have, <laughs> he, he can't play it loud enough to dominate the whole thing. So you have a very nice ensemble sound of the three instruments. You can actually hear the cello. And, and uh, of course, the violin tends to dominate, but Haydn expected the violin to dominate. That's just the way violins do. I mean, he called it a keyboard sonata, but that's because that's what they called trios back then, an accompanied sonata. But but he didn't want the keyboard to be the dominant thing, and everybody else just, you know, playing along. Yeah. And so so uh, historically informed performance includes things like use of rubato and vibrato and kind of stylistic stuff, correct? Playing re- playing repeats, yeah. Right. Uh, are we going to do that, or are we not going to do that? Well. Uh, if Haydn wrote a repeat, if Mozart wrote a repeat, he more or less expected it to be played. <laughs> right, to be repeated. Huh? Right, which which uh, some people even, you know, in the in the Brahms symphonies, some people even eliminate the the repeat. Um, and then for the so for period instruments, we're, we're we're talking specific. Are they are they replicas in most cases, or are they genuinely centuries well, old? Well, a lot of them are replicas, uh, simply because, especially woodwinds just didn't survive, just didn't make it. A lot of the violins were converted to modern sort of violins during the 19th century. They've been converted back. Uh, You know, the neck is is at a different angle and it's shorter and uh, uh, a little bit wider. Uh, You've got a lower bridge, you know, a variety of different things that directly affect the sound. And of course, not to mention gut strings, which have a different sound than steel strings. Uh, and they don't have the volume, uh, you know. Of course, uh, the the trend towards modern instruments is not a bad thing. Right. It's just that they're not, you know. It's it's the propriety of of going back in time and saying, well, this instrument that was 
designed and built in uh, 1875 is is perfect for this music that was written in 1775. I don't think so. Yeah. Uh, no, that, that's me, a good that's a good argument. It makes sense to, yeah. to hear what what Haydn would have heard. And you know, there's a lot of fanaticism involved in this, and I can see why you would avoid getting into that discussion. That's part of the reason, and, yes. <laughs> well, uh, I've been I've been through the wars. I've got I've got the bandages to prove it. But uh, my belief is that uh, uh, there there are recordings and there are uh, concerts of all sorts out there for for any taste. And, sure. Uh, I wouldn't listen to Haydn, not on period instruments, but I wouldn't demand that you did. That's the difference between exactly. fanaticism and, you know, I'm a fanatic to the sense that for me, that's the right thing, but not that. And it, therefore it must be for you too. You know, if that's not what you want to do, then, you know, you're perfectly welcome. It's the music that's important. You're perfectly welcome to listen to it on any instrument you like. Just listen to it. <laughs> well, well, for the for the symphonies, um, because the the Fisher um, cycle is the one that I'm I'm listening to currently. The um, you know, mind you, a Haydn cycle is is quite a lot of music of all the symphonies. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's you know, it's not like buying a couple of discs of the Beethoven symphonies or something. So the two that I had kind of that I was considering at the time were the the Fisher set. Or the um, was it Philharmonia Philharmonia Hungarica the Antaldorati set, um, yeah. and and I went with Fisher, but do you have any any suggestions on or or other sets? So is it Hogwood or others that that are that you prefer? Well, this is this is what I would suggest to you, uh, if you're actually in the market and you want a truly good set of period instrument. Uh, Haydn, which happens to also be among the best recordings, no matter uh, period or modern. Uh, Decca has just, within the last two months, released the Hogwood and Franz Bruggen combined into one box set that has all all the symphonies on it, every one of them. They got, there was no period, believe it or not, there was no period instrument recordings of numbers 79 and 81. Uh, and, huh. and they commissioned Ottavio Danton uh, to, to record those. And that disc was released in February and it's included in this box set. So for the first time ever, you could get a period instrument set of all of uh, Haydn's symphonies. And I would tell you that uh, at, the, at the price of it, which was uh, $62 or something. Oh, wow. Uh, it, it's the best bargain that could be had out there. Uh, as it happens, I have all that stuff anyway, because <laughs> I had all the Hogwood and I had all the Bruggen and I bought the Dantone the day it came out. So I, I, don't, I don't need the box. However, I would tell you that if I didn't have that stuff, I would buy that box in a heartbeat. I'm looking it up right now to see if I can find it. <laughs> I believe the thing was between the between the Dorati and the um, Fisher. Um, someone explained that there was one of the sets was exactly true to what Haydn had written. The other set, one of them, kind of took some liberties with some scoring or orchestration, but that it was much more, you know, vibrantly or, or kind of passionately performed. And I think I went for the latter. 
but I, I think that was Fisher from what I remember reading, you know, in a. Of, of those two, I would, I would, have, I have the Fisher and I have several singles of the Durati. Uh, I would, I would buy the Fisher. Uh, oh, good. And, uh, on modern instruments, I think the Fisher is, is an excellent choice. The, the only, the only knock I've heard on it, and, and I have to tell you that I haven't really listened to the London symphonies on there, uh, you know, with any expectations one way or another, but that the, mm-hmm. uh, the sound quality, uh, that was the first thing they recorded. Uh, that was recorded originally for Nimbus back in the uh, oh, wow. late 1980s, I believe. And then Brilliant bought the, uh, the licensing rights. But, uh, uh, Nimbus had a variety of different uh, recordings. Uh, you know, they were also the label of uh, uh, Roy Goodman and the Hanover Band. And uh, oh yeah, now yeah, and th- they had a variety of recordings, and they recorded them in a church, and that was a big thing they had. And uh, hmm. the sound just wasn't good. Washy. Uh, and, yeah, and it, it was echoey, and uh, you know, so so uh, uh, Goodman's. Uh, uh, Beethoven symphony set gets that same knock, even though the playing on it is excellent. The uh, certainly not a studio or a concert hall recording. Right. Well, that's kind of a shame, but uh, I will I will look around for the this this box set because your your response to my period instrument question was very convincing. So I'll I'll look for those next on the list. The quartets. Yes. The, the so so in, in in talking about the uh, Mortzin and all of that earlier, the the early symphonies predate the early quartets. No. No. The okay. <laughs> first quartets were probably a year or so before the very first symphony. Okay. Okay. Uh, um, approximately 1756. You would you would uh, is is what they've nailed down. The before. Opus One. Oh, yeah, well, that's yeah. right. It's Opus One. Yes. Well, right. <laughs> but to see that those, of course, there were no opuses at that yeah. time. That was right. an artificial construct of a publisher. But yeah, his first quartets, which he wrote uh, uh, on summer vacation, he went on on a. He was invited by uh, Baron Fernberg to to his summer home, which is uh, west of Vienna, down the or up the Danube, I suppose it would be, uh, west of Vienna. And uh, that place still exists today, by the way. They have a, a, it's the birthplace of the string quartet, and they have a festival there every summer. Uh, you can find it online. It's it's quite interesting, an attractive place. Uh, but uh, anyway, uh, Haydn was invited there, and uh, Fernberg asked him to write a couple pieces of music for the forces that were available there, which, which were, I just happened to be a couple of violin players and a viola and <laughs> some discussion, whether it was a cello or whether it was a bass, but, um, I tend toward bass, but. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. It was, uh, that was kind of standard, uh, and, uh, Viennese music at, at that time, uh, they had a, a sort of a bass. It was not the the big double bass that you think of today, but but they called it a violon, and it probably some sort of hybrid between a uh, uh, a bass of the violin family and a a bass of the viola family, a uh, viola da gamba or whatever, you know. And uh, it looks like if you see a picture of one, it looks like a cello on steroids. It's really fat. <laughs> 
muscular looking little <laughs> thing, but it's not huge. It's 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 only a little taller than a, a cello, actually. But huh. it's about as thick from front to back, and um, it's a marvelous sounding instrument. They, they still exist. Those were in general use all over Austria, and. Uh, when Haydn wrote that quartet, he didn't, on that line, he wrote basso. And basso to, can be anything. It could have been a harpsichord playing the figured bass, whatever they had. And, um, and there's, there's a lot of uh, discussion nowadays that it could have been actually a quintet with a cello and a violon playing that line. Huh. Or if he had a bassoon player there. Because you know Haydn wrote in his uh, uh, notes, and he wrote a letter to the to the monks uh, uh, in Zweidel when he wrote the Aplausus Cantata, that said, "My ideal for bass is to have. I'd rather have a a, a cello, a bassoon, and a, a violon playing than I would to have six cellos." You <laughs> know? Because the the variety of the tone color, the tambourine, yeah, is is uh, totally, you know, it gives you a, more different kinds of sounds, not just a C, but you know, a C from a bassoon or a C from a cello, that open note on the on the bass string of a cello, right? You know, and, and so he, that's that's what he liked. It could have been played that way. There's nothing, nothing at all that says you can't play it with six people and three people playing the bass. Right. You know. and, and so these, um, from, from some of the, the recent comments or discussions on some of the, um, it was a couple months ago I wrote about the, the Opus 1 and 2, the mm -hmm. divertimentos. Um, your, your friend Hans Keller um, kind of sets them aside um, as, as kind of, um, I don't know. That, Not worth your time. Yeah, I don't know that he actually says insignificant, but he does in so many words, um, kind of as as prototypes or as kind of you know experiments or whatever. Um, what is the because because I'm I'm at the point now, uh, just over the couple of days ago, I, I finished um, reading through a couple of times and listening to uh, the F minor quartet, Opus Twenty, Number Five, and it is mm -hmm. spectacular. Yeah, it's brilliant work. It it's is. it's it's so much different than the the Opus One and Two, and so his his kind of you know bashing them or setting them aside as 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 inferior is more an attack on them than it is praise of the late works. Um, he's oh, say that yeah. He's he's also <laughs> kind of uh, along the lines of of what you said about the symphony. These were the works where he was kind of inventing and learning what to do with this group of four people right yes exactly exactly he had he had this challenge set before him and uh he thought well i'll do this i'll i'll, I'll write for for two violins and uh, basically the viola and the, and the bass line and play along with each other uh you could fairly say that all of haydn's quartets up until opus 20 are mini concertos for uh, for a violin with with the accompaniment of sure. other strings, sure. and uh, uh, you know that that's not unfair or, or wrong in any way to to say that it, it was Opus Twenty where he 
really began to give into individual voices there and uh, let the other instruments speak. So this whole concept of which, uh, I mean, Goethe is the one that, that that's a quote from him. And that, that comes from the early 19th century. That's not uh, contemporary with, with these works by any means. Uh, you know, the conversation between friends. Uh, quote. Yes. And, uh, you know, it it wasn't that at the time. It was uh, it was uh, I think, and, and really, it's not explicated much anywhere. I think there should be more research done on this by people who have primary sources available to them. But I really, really believe that Haydn wrote those for himself and his friends to play. Uh, this was, this was, uh, for example, the Opus Nine. I, I think he had that with uh, Tomasini to play the first violin. He had a second violin. He had the whole orchestra there to play with. I mean, those guys didn't work twenty-four-seven. <laughs> right. Uh, I think he wrote that music for them to play, uh, to amuse themselves with, and to practice uh, new effects and and uh, you know his compositional effects. And uh, there, there are things which, uh, and somewhere or other, I, I wrote a little bit about this, but there are things which appear in the quartets that later appear in other music of his and stuff that he did. And it's like he tried them out in the quartets and, uh, and then when it, 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 to see what kind of effect it produced. And when it, when it went well, you know, then. Uh, it showed up elsewhere. Well. Yeah. But 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 really and truly, I, I believe that that uh, uh, he was writing that music for his own enjoyment. And, uh, you know, on Saturday night, the boys would sit around the living room <laughs> playing music. You know, that's uh, that's that's just there's nothing militating against that. This whole right, concept sure. of, of, of four guys in tuxedos up on a stage in front of a thousand people playing uh, that D minor quartet of Opus nine is got to be so foreign to anything that Haydn envisioned for it that you know it just doesn't um it just where would it be a situation where he would have walked into a concert hall today and been like oh you guys really like i that not that one like he didn't i i didn't mean it um right 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 <laughs> play, play my opus 76 number two okay yeah. and, no, I, and not, not that'll that work um but it is it's it's amazing the difference between the the opus one and two works and then Opus 20, and and they're you know they're they're collections of some of the listeners might not know they're they're collections of six works to each Opus number one. Uh, well, number two has what two quartets that are reorchestrations or spurious. well they were they were actually they were originally they were divertimentos for four strings and two horns which was a common genre back then uh-huh. and uh, uh, actually he only wrote ten quartets to start with and, you know he wasn't writing them as a group to be published so he just wrote right. 10 and uh, uh when when the parisian publishers got a hold of them in the early 1760s there's no knowing how they got to paris but somebody brought them there and uh <laughs> but but they had these also they had these divertimentos and uh, they are actually, uh, I can tell you the Hoboken numbers, they're Hoboken 2, number 22 and 23, I believe. Uh, they uh, just dropped the horn parts out and, and kept the string quartet part and made that 
two of the string quartets of Opus 2. I see. Uh, and then Opus 3 is Spurious. Those are not him. Right, right. That was Romanus Hofstetter. There's no doubt that that was Hofstetter. They've done manuscript uh, uh, reconstruction on them where, where they've, they've uh, taken the ink off where Haydn's name was written, not by oh, wow. Haydn. And uh, Hofstetter's name was part of, was written underneath, uh, embedded into the manuscript paper. And then, what's the deal with that? Just to just to sell the just to sell the part of the uh, the works, or absolutely, <laughs> they were doing anything that moved. Uh, I know one of one of Jairowitz's, uh symphonies uh, when uh, uh, Johann Tost went to Paris. He had uh, Symphony Number no. Eighty Eight and Eighty Nine with him you know the post paris symphonies right those and um uh, uh, uh tost was going to sell them to sieber a publisher in paris and he didn't didn't have a third one so he took one of jarowitz's symphonies and, <laughs> and made him a threesome and sold him as three by haydn and then gyro had been in italy at the time and he came up to paris and went to the to the uh concert spiritual and they played that symphony by Haydn and he said wait a minute I wrote that <laughs> and uh they they were you know everybody's like you're crazy that's a Haydn symphony and uh, oh wow you know, he was shouted down and uh he was he's quite irritated and probably yeah, right would have been too <laughs> yeah so that is currently it for part two of our conversation we still have part three of our conversation um this discussion actually took place uh, with Mike McCaffrey on the phone. Um, the software that I was using at the time was having some problems, one thing led to another. Um, but, you know, it was like a conversation that I would have with a friend or with someone, you know, over dinner or a drink, just chatting about something that the person knows a lot about. And if someone is knowledgeable enough and passionate enough about something, then it's pretty easy to listen to them talk about it. So um, I was really interested to hear all of the things that he has to say. Again, almost like he was kind of there and saw it himself. And this informs a lot of the listening um, that I do of Haydn or even other you know, works of that era. And so uh, we have one more part of that conversation that will be coming up in the future. So stay tuned for that. Again, you can check out Mike's website, HaydnSeek at www.f jhyden.com you can find me fugue for thought uh, at www.fugueforthought.de fugue f u g u e fugueforthought.de also on twitter and facebook and we are in itunes which is probably where you're listening to us Leave a review and a preferably favorable rating if you can. Um, I'm not in the U.S. store, so I'm not sure if some of those things come through. But find me online, send me an email if you're interested in something or would like to give some feedback. It would be cool to hear from people. Um, we have more episodes coming up. Part two of some of the episodes from the past few weeks, as well as some new stuff that I'm very excited to share. So uh, stay tuned, subscribe, share with your friends, like us on Facebook, all of those things. And we will see you soon. Bye-bye.